Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, April the 11th, 2022, and it's time for an episode of Out Back with Jack. Today's is going to be all listener Q&A, though. I got a bunch of stuff for you today. I think you'll enjoy it. And I have a winner of the Ukraine backdoor into NATO with nuclear component involved. And there was a ton of responses to this. A lot of people actually found what I was looking for. A ton of people found things that were related to Ukraine and nuclear that were absolutely had nothing to do with what I was looking for. And what I did is the person, there was a person that got close, but it wasn't right. And then all of a sudden they came. People started finding what I was talking about. I'll tell you more about it when we get to it. Um, but I just took the first person who actually got a headline like I was talking about. Uh, the particular headline, and this is what I was looking for, uh, the, some were more hysterical uh, for, or, or more aggressive or assertive. Uh, but this is a Fox News headline, and the story is still there. Ukraine seeks deal guaranteeing armies with, quote, nuclear component, end quote, will intervene if it is attacked. This was a backdoor to NATO and pumping up the concept that this would be a nuclear response. Again, some of the headlines were more specific to a nuclear response, but this one hit it. Uh, it came in from an individual we'll talk about when we get into the show, but that happened, and the $100 Bitcoin bounty has already been sent and is on his way to the winner because Jack pays his debts and keep his, keeps his word. I'll tell you more about that. We're going to be talking about a ton of stuff today, though. Aspirin and tomatoes, PDCs, what to do if the power goes out if you're on a well, um, nutritional deficiencies in ducklings, dealing with carpenter ants, How the average person can use Bitcoin Lightning, the way I talked about Jack Mahler's doing it last week. Um, when to transplant your starts, if you do your starts in a hydroponic system, to till or not to till your garden the first time. And is there another option? Thoughts on deep freezes and generators if the power goes out. Getting started homesteading when you're on the road all the time. A use for green onions when they go to seed beyond just getting seed from them. This was pretty cool. It's kind of sad I didn't think of it. Somebody asking me about cooking tri-tips, a 30-day food storage. If you have that already, should you start pulling from it to save money? I'm going to say not unless you need to, but we'll talk about that a little bit. How would I personally live out my principles if I got stuck on grand jury duty, or any jury for that matter? Um, how does a 20-something hope to even save to buy a house in this economy? I'm going to tell you, the answer is actually quite easily if you're a hustler. We'll talk about all of that and more in just a minute, and this will be done by a live stream today. If you're listening to the audio only, you're hearing this introduction, but you can always look up the video if there's something in it you really wish to see. With that, before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a very long-term sponsor of TSP. I can't tell you exactly when they came on board, but I'll tell you it was more than a decade. A decade of sponsoring a podcast, that's something special. And guess what, guys? We actually have a lot of sponsors that have been around more than a decade. It's pretty amazing. It says something about you guys, our show, what we do, and the community of sponsors that we have. Check them out today to learn how you two can start building knives the easy way with a kit, or if you're progressing in your journey of knife making, how you can get the, the coolest, most awesomest, yes, most awesomest, 
uh, exotic materials, Damascus steel, Cape Buffalo horn, mammoth tusk, you name it, you find it all at knifekits.com. Next up, the Free State Project. How about this for an idea? Summer's coming. You want to take a vacation. You don't want to sweat your butt off on your summer vacation. So go to the mountains in New Hampshire. Beautiful place. While you're there, meet some really cool people that are part of the Free State Project and see if FSP is right for you. If it is, maybe you find a new home. If it isn't, you take a great vacation. You get to meet cool people. And if you're clever about it and talk to your CPA, maybe you figure out how to write that trip off as a tax expenditure. Win, 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 and win. Check them out today at fsp.org forward slash visit NH. And with that, let's jump on into our episode today. And we're going to drop into the live feed starting now. And we are live. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 3072, I believe, of the Survival Podcast. Let me make sure I got that right. Yep, 3072. We have an Outback with Jack episode. Um, last week, we hit really hard on a lot of the things that are wrong in, in the world and in America. Um, we had our uh, first Tuesday chat with Nicole and John, John Willis of SOE Tactical Gear, and, of course, Nicole Awesome Sauce of Living Free in Tennessee. And that hit a lot of the negatives, food supply shortages, etc. And then Friday, my Outback with Jack edition uh, for Friday really hit on a lot of problems and negatives and things that are going wrong in the world. And what I always try to do is provide balance. I always want to, if I, if I go in that realm, and we have to at times because, well, it's the survival podcast and we need to be clear what it is we're trying to survive and thrive through. But then if you don't add the positive, if you don't address the problems with solutions, then all you are is a podcast version of mainstream media news. Because mainstream media news, now you might give more truth than they do, but in the end, when's the last time on any news channel you heard a solution? And I don't mean some, you know public interest or personal interest or something like that, where like, oh, this one guy over here feeds ducks, and because he feeds ducks, the, the, the unicorns fart rainbows over the pond and little children smile. Not like that. Like, this is what you can do that actually will affect your life to the better, to live a better life right now. You don't hear that in the news, do you? And I always try to go both sides and make sure that we're doing more of that than the problems. Now, the conundrum is, flatly... When it comes to podcast downloads, live people showing up, etc., the audience is double, maybe triple for a show about the bad things than the good things. But that's not going to ever sway me to spend more time on the bad than the good. It's, it's more important that I help people in my mind um, than it is for me to tell you about bad things. I do want to start off with something, though, and uh, it is from last week, but it's I, I made a promise, and I always keep my promises, so... Uh, I'm going to make good on it now and make sure that people that didn't win know why they didn't win. So you either didn't win because you didn't find the type of headline I was looking for that was about the thing that I was looking for in the specific way that I described it, or you found it, but you weren't first. So Troy, and I don't know if he wants his last name given away, so I, I, I won't do it, but a gentleman named Troy found this headline for me. And again, if you're thinking, I found a headline just like that, maybe you did, Troy just found it first. And for those that are on the audio only, Ukraine seeks deal guaranteeing armies with nuclear component will intervene if it is attacked again. And this deal was put out uh, the last week of March by Ukraine during their peace talks with 
uh, Russia. And what troubled me with this is this is actually a subdued headline compared to many of the headlines that I read. And I want to explain how this happened and why I wanted to make sure that, one, I wasn't crazy, and two, that we talked about it. And, and don't worry, from here out, once we get done with this first thing, I have 15 more questions by the audience, and none have anything to do with these kind of current event, uh, you know, political crap in the world, etc. But I wanted to clear this up. So I saw dozens of headlines during this period here, around March 28th and 29th. Ukraine seeking a deal guaranteeing with armies with nuclear weapons, nuclear components, etc. will intervene if it is attacked again. And there's two things going on here. One, this is a backdoor NATO deal. Let me read just a little bit uh, of this for you. Ukraine proposed that it would remain militarily neutral, but it was also seeking mandatory entry into the single market of European Union as a full-fledged member. That's part of so They still want to be part of the EU. And they wanted a pledge. Let me see if I can find this here. Um, Ukraine is seeking concrete security guarantees during peace negotiations in Turkey would include promises of military assistance during a future conflict from the world's leading armies, including those with nuclear weapons in exchange for adopting neutral status. Like I said, so... Part of my problem here, and we can lose the headline now, um, not really problem, but an irony here. So Russia says, we'll do a peace deal. We want you to say you won't go into NATO. Uh, Ukraine's like, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll guarantee we won't go into NATO. So we'll accept no obligations as a NATO member, but we want the NATO nations to agree to come to our aid if we're attacked. And we need people that have nuclear weapons to do that. Now, why do I say the NATO nations? Because who has nuclear weapons? The Indians and Pakistanis? Well, they're not going to do it. Okay, come on. Um, the Chinese? Well, they're not going to do it. The Russians? Well, we're afraid of Russia, so Russia's not going to do it. So who's that, who's that really leave? Well, the Israelis have some nukes. They're not going to do it. So who do we have left? We have the United States, the United Kingdom, and France. So basically, what Zelensky's saying is, I want to guarantee if Russia attacks Ukraine again, that the U.K., the United States, and France, at minimum, will come to our aid and fight Russia on our behalf. Again, and so we're not going to join NATO, so we don't have to fit any of the bill. We don't have to be responsible if you're attacked. This is actually a sweeter deal for Ukraine. Now, I'm not saying that Russia should or should not take this or, or whatever. I'm not weighing in on my opinion. My point is that in response to we want a declaration of neutrality, the Ukrainians have said to Russia, sure, Except we want everybody to agree to automatically protect us, even if we don't do anything to protect them. So, like, that's a better deal for Ukraine. Now, I don't think Russia will take that deal. I don't think that's what Russia's looking for. A guaranteed military response, if they have any military conflict with Ukraine, is the entire main reason for this conflict in the first place. My bigger issue, and the reason I paid Troy a hundred bucks and would have paid whoever the first person was to find that headline. This was memory hold. Um... All the media outlets went overboard with it. Like I said, the Fox News one was a tame headline by comparison. Um, you know, there were some of them read to the point of Ukraine seeks guaranteed nuclear response if they're invaded in return for neutrality, things like that. Now, I was confused as to how this memory hole happened. There's lots of memory holes out there, we all know that. But this one in particular, what confused me was 
How do you get all these news agencies to take away the stories, to change their headlines, etc., or at least to moderate them? And what looks like to me, because so many people once, because I kept responding to people, that's not what I mean, here's what I mean. The reason that it disappeared wasn't that the stories themselves were taken down. You know, they, they come off the front page, they go down below the fold in the old newspeak. Um, Google and the other search engines simply removed them from the newsfeed. It was purged. And that's an interesting thing because what it shows you is content can exist, but if the aggregators bury the content, much like the Hunter Biden laptop story, etc., or if they make sure that their version always comes first, they can effectively get rid of the truth and hide it in plain sight. Anyway, Troy, thanks for finding that. And again, I want to point out that this was not something that I went looking for. This was... In all kinds of, uh, like, when you went to, like, Google News or Yahoo News and you didn't search, the week this happened, it was all above fold. It was all being pushed, aggregated outward. And then somebody somewhere said, uh, guys, uh, uh, this just doesn't really fit the agenda we have right now, so uh, make it go away and pretend it never happened. And I'm sure some of the news agencies did rewrite their headlines. But what it looks like more is just all the ways to find it were changed, which disturbs me because I couldn't even find it with, like, Brave News. But I think what's happening, a lot of sites like Brave, um, Brave Search, and other alternative search engines, I think they're actually pulling a lot of the results from Google News because, in general, it's the most reliable to find stuff. Uh, I, I don't know that they've actually built out their own algorithms enough to operate on their own, so they might be backdooring some stuff. Anyway, let's go on into your questions, comments, concerns, etc. from last week. Um, it's our, our Blast Raptor says, I had to use Boolean logic terms just to find that one article that didn't quite fit the title. Yeah, and I did too. I, uh, for those not familiar with Boolean, it, it's things like putting plus marks in quotations for exact match and stuff, and I... I tried a little bit and I gave up. And it wasn't just in the news search. I couldn't find it in the regular, freaking, everyday search results. And I knew exactly what I was looking for. So there's some fuckery going on there. Anyway, moving back to like your questions and stuff. So I have shortened the questions and I've tried to remember the details. And But this way we can go fast. We're going to cover 15 of them. And I'm going to try to make them not specific to the individual too much so that everybody can benefit from I had a question about taking a PDC online, a distance learning PDC, and if so, what the best option would be. I'm going to say first, if you have the time, which is the big thing, and more than the money, the time, because usually it's a two-week course, to go to an on-site PDC, I highly recommend it. Because you're not going to just get a PDC then. You're going to get a PDC and you're going to get plugged into a network of other permaculture students, and you're going to form a relationship with your instructor, because no PDC is that big. I've never been to a PDC with 200 people sitting in a class, right? Usually, uh, you're somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30, and when you spend you know, 10-ish days together or more, uh, you get to know everybody on a group that size. So if you can, and you want to go to a PDC after what I'm going to say, which you may not want to, um, I would go there first. If you're going to do it online, I, I highly recommend Jeff Lawton. It's one of the more expensive options, but it's the best. And the only thing I can do beyond recommending Jeff's online PDC, if you're going to take a different one, send it to me, 
let me see who's doing it, and let me read the syllabus, etc., and I'll give you an opinion of it. Because I'm not going to go through 80 of them to try to figure it out, right? So that's 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 kind of that on the on the online. The bigger thing is I want you to think about, do you need a PDC? Or do you want a PDC? After you spend the time and the money to acquire it, will you feel like it, it serves you well? So... I wrote an article years and years ago called What Exactly is a PDC and What Isn't It? And, and I'm, going to give, I'm going to give you a description of a lot of people that take PDCs that probably should not. The person who says, I want to take a PDC because I want a garden, a small group of perennials like you know trees, bushes, and vines, some chickens and some rabbits, on my small quarter acre to one acre urban to suburban to small country property. And I just want to feed myself off my own piece of property, and that's my goals. Um, I'm going to tell you right now that you're not going to get a lot of real heavy impact in your life over learning how not to pollute a freshwater lens uh, on a uh, tropical island, which is very cool, right? Or the uh, ancient Hawaiian uh, farming methodologies that kept everything intact all the way down the side of steep mountains. Uh, or how to read the landscape in, in desert, especially if you don't live in desert. Like, there's a lot of people that what they think is, I'll go take a PDC and that's going to make me a great gardener and a great backyard orchardist and a great uh, backyard uh, caretaker for some rabbits and some chickens. It's not. Permaculture design course. The course is designed to teach you how to design permaculture systems at a macro level. And you have to think of it like design 101 college level course for natural systems crammed into 10 days when if you took it in college it would be an entire semester. It's an 80-hour course crammed into 10 days. That does not include working on your project because you'll always complete a project for a PDC. That does, you know, It might with some instructors, but in general it doesn't. It's eight hours of instruction a day, plus you're doing your final design project in your own time, during breaks, after hours, etc. And if, if that's what you want, and it will change your entire worldview, it will change your thinking process. It will make you more of a systems thinker. But there will be times during it you're going to be thinking to yourself, I will never use this. It will be like taking a high school math course when somebody says, you'll use this calculus someday, and you're like, no, I won't. And yet it will be more useful than most of the calculus you don't remember from high school or Algebra 2 or whatever it is that the highest level math you took in high school that you don't use is. It will be more useful than that but do you have the mental discipline to know you're going to go through that and think to yourself, self, I still need to know these things because of what they'll enable me to see elsewhere. If you want to eventually have a design consultancy practice, if you want to be a teacher, etc., I recommend it. But I'm going to tell you that a lot of people would be better off. Pick a thing that you want to do on your property and learn how to do the thing and then pick another thing and learn how to do the thing. I'm not putting down PDCs. I've been to three myself. I've taught at quite a few of them. I'm sure I'll teach at them again. I don't know if I'll ever run my own, but I've taught pieces and parts of them. Because, guys, if you ever rise up to being an instructor, teaching an entire PDC by yourself is an inhuman thing. Bill Mollison said that. He created it. Um, 
but you're, in my opinion, you're better off learning to become a really great gardener in your climate with the techniques that work for your climate. If what you want most is food production in your backyard, learn how to take care of chickens and ducks. Um, one of the reasons I'm putting the aquatic system, uh, aquatics course together that I am is it's all nut and bolts. There's a little bit of theory, learning things about uh, natural cycles, uh, fall, winter turnover, I'm sorry, fall, fall and spring turnover, and nitrite, nitrate cycles, and things like that. But 90% of it is this is how you do the thing that you want to do. And 90% of design courses with permaculture are not this is how you do the thing that you want to do. This is how to understand the thing that you're looking at. So make it what makes best What works best for you? Uh, and a couple of people are doing it already. I'll remind you guys that are in the live feed. If you want me to comment on something at the end, uh, I star all comments that at least have the first three words in all caps for questions and comment later. And I'll come back to you at the end. Uh, Trevor, just ex you know, give us a good example of how to do that. Uh, but that's, I would do Jeff Lawton's if I was going to go online. It's the best one I've taken. I learned more from Jeff's online than I learned from the two that I took in person. Uh, and that was the old version. The first version. And it's just gotten better over the years. Um, but in some ways, I got more out of going to... And I went to one as a pure student, and I went to one as like an adjunctive teacher um, that I was at for quite a while. And those I got a lot out of being there with people. And so, if you can, I would do that. Now, moving on. Ah, question was, what exactly are you doing with tomatoes and aspirin and why? Like... People keep asking, and I keep giving the answer, and the answer is very short, and I'm going to give it again. When I start my tomatoes this year, I put an aspirin in every start, right in the soil. Seed goes in, aspirin goes next to it. Then, during while it's growing up, I popped another aspirin in it. And when they go in the ground, I put an aspirin in the hole. And my plan is right now about once a month to get a watering can. My watering can's two gallons. And to crush up like three or four aspirin, throw it in there and mix it up, and then water all my tomatoes with it. There is no more. That is it. There is no more. That is it. One more time. There is no more to it at this point than that. There is no more. That is all I'm doing. Does it work? I don't know yet. I've heard from several people in the audience that this works very, very good to stave off various late and early blights in tomatoes. If it works, great. Will it work? I don't know. What am I doing? I'm taking an aspirin. The reason I'm saying it this way is because every time I've talked about it, I've said this, and I keep getting questions about it, and I don't know how to say it any differently. I take the aspirin tablet and stick it in the dirt next to the tomato plant. When I transplant the tomato, I throw an aspirin in the hole And once a month, dissolve an aspirin or two into a gallon of water and water the plant. Why? Because that's what the Internet and the people have told me. That's it. There is no more. If you ask again, I'm not answering it again. And this is what you have to be like, well, Jack, you sound like a dick today. Why? Um, I am a little bit on the top rope coming out of a weekend. All right. Um, however, the reason I'm saying it this way is every time I've talked about it, I've said it. And the only way that you know I've talked about it is to have heard me talk about it. You see the problem? So sometimes I think I tell you something and you guys think I'm holding back. This is why I, the only reason I even bothered it. Um, you know, the only reason I'm even bringing it up is so you can understand I never hold back. I never hold back. 
period. I don't keep things secret from you. I don't withhold knowledge from you guys. And Nathaniel's asking me, uh, I recommended Jeff Lawton. Does he cover the topics in Hawaii you mentioned? He did before. It's a new course coming out this year. Does he? I, I don't know. Anyway, let's move on. So that's it with the aspirin and tomatoes. No more answers. Because if you've asked the question, you've heard me say it, and you've heard the answer. There's no more. There's no secret information. All right. Next up, how do you make sure you can use your well if the power goes out and or the well pump dies? Let's separate them apart. All right. If you're going to rely on your well with a power outage, you need a generator capable of powering your well pump. And I highly recommend that you involve a professional electrician to set you up with a switch, with a cutover switch, where the power goes out. This is what I have. I have a cable that blows into the generator, and it goes into the switch on the wall, and then you go, and that, that switch cuts off power from the grid. And essentially, I'm now off-grid with my generator powering the systems wired into that bypass switch, one of which is the well. And that is the best way, and again, Get a professional electrician to un, to you know install, set up the generator, fire it up, and run the well. And you're going to have to look at the well as far as how much power the, the well pump draws, or usually fairly high draw, and consult with your electrician and make sure that everything's done right and that you have enough ass in your generator to make it so, in the words of Captain Picard. I don't have a different answer. I'm not holding back. It's exactly what I've done. If you've been to my house, you go out of where my outdoor kitchen is, you look up on the wall, you see electrical blocks and everything, a big old switch there, that's what that is. That's how you do it, and know that your well will, in fact, come on and pump water to your house. Now, let's talk about the pump. The odds that the pump is going to be dead when the power's off are pretty low. Okay? Uh, And if it was, how would you know? And so what you need to do right now, if you're on a well and you haven't done this already, you need to find a plumbing company that specializes or does wells as a primary pump purpose of their business. Like They're not like, well, we can look at wells, but it's not really what we do. Um, if you're in the Fort Worth area, probably Dallas too, Mr. Otter Plumbing is good for that. It's who we use. Mr. Otter, I didn't make the name. The dogs freak out when the van comes because there's a great big otter dressed in a suit. It's like it's actually the owner of the company with an otter face, and it's like life size. And when it pulls in, the dogs lose their mind when they see it. Anyway, um, you need to talk to them and say, if my pump dies, how long will it take before you're out here to replace my pump? Because my pump's old. And it has a few things that I'm a little bit worried about. And they're expensive. And so I talked to my technician when he was out here last time, and I said, do I need to replace this? He said, absolutely, you do not need to replace this. This could go another 10 years. It's a huge expense. Don't do it. If you need a pump, we will have a pump installed here in less than 48 hours and probably less than 24. We make it our policy. That if a customer, not some random person off the internet, not somebody that called us the first time, a customer in our books, if their well is down, not producing water, they go to the very top of the list. You need to find somebody like that to replace the pump. Um, 
And are there man Thomas is asking, I'll go ahead and answer this now, are there manual electric combo wells, or would you always need two separate hulls? I don't know, but my guess is that's probably not the best option. All right? The best option is going to be that you have backup power and you have water storage rain catch type tanks where you have extra water. We have over 3,000 gallons of rain catch in poly tanks. Here's the important thing, though. Let's say it got really dry. Let's say we were using that water for irrigation and other things like we do. And let's say that power goes out and we have no well unless we're running the generator. Well, I'm going to run the generator quite a bit on any given day. I'm going to be doing it for things like deep freezing, which we will get to later. So it's going to be running anyway. So what are we going to do? I'm going to take a garden hose. I'm going to stick it in the poly tank. And while the generators run, and we're going to open the hose bib, and we're going to fill the tank whenever the generator's running so that we have water with raised tank pressure at any time when the power's off. This is the one place that everything falls to shit. Power's out during a heavy freeze event because while the water's not running, the pipes are going to probably freeze up on you. So that's the one place you really need to put some additional thought into it. But in general, we have a professionally installed bypass switch with a generator capable of running the well pump. That's the way to go. Uh, and then we have additional water storage capacity, and we will fill up that capacity if nature hasn't done it for us with that secondary power. And then the other thing you can do, if you are doing rain catch and you're on a well, you're not losing much by filling your rain tanks with your well water. So if you're in the middle of a drought and you've depleted those stores before anything goes wrong, fill it up, man. It ain't going to hurt nothing. It's well water, not city water. Anyway, next up, um, I got a series of questions from this guy. They were all over the map. Really wasn't exactly clear what he was asking, and his last email to me said, disregard. But I'm going to handle it anyway because I get what I think the question is a lot anyway. So, it's a two-part question. What should be your drake-to-duck ratio if you want good reproduction with ducks? And he was also having a problem with a limpy duck, and he looked it up, I think, and figured out that often ducklings in particular can have a B vitamin deficiency that can lead to them having a neurological disorder in their development where they'll have like one leg that works and one leg that doesn't. And it's like they got the palsy or something. And those guys, once they go a certain level down with that problem, almost never survive. Uh, it is a B vitamin deficiency. And he was saying that the ducks would not eat the B, uh, the nutritional yeast on top of the pellets that you need to mix it or something. They don't care. They actually like it. Um, when I'm brooding ducklings, and I even do it with chickens because why not? I buy nutritional yeast flakes, and I fill their feeder, and I sprinkle a big mountain of it right on the top. Even if they're picking through it, they're going to end up getting enough of it. Don't worry about it. That's all you got to do. Next, I, I will tell you that I have never, repeat ever, never, ever, never had this problem with ducklings that are raised on the grass. This is only when they're in a brooder box. Or the one time I had it really bad... We got a bunch of baby ducks, like like 50. And we bought uh, my 12 by 16 shed, and we decided before we put our stuff in it that we bought it for, I would just make it a giant brooder and brood them in there. 
And we had a bunch of them we lost before we figured out what was going on. It was before I knew about this. And as soon as we started feeding them nutritional yeast flakes, the problem stopped and we didn't lose another duck. And we lost way too many until we figured out what was going on. And it was actually some of you guys that told us about it. So there's your answer for brooding ducks, nutritional yeast, plenty of B vitamins. And I also like to feed like black soldier fly larvae and mealworms to my baby ducks. And when they're really little, like the first week or two, what I do is because they're freeze-dried, I just kind of crumble them up and sprinkle them in. But I still use the yeast flakes. Duck-to-drake ratio, 5-to-1 was what this guy was going to end up with. Basically, he had five ducks, two baby drakes. At least he thinks he does. I think they were Muscovies. 5-to-1 will work fine. Um, people will say you can go 8-to-1 or even 10-to-1. I disagree. I disagree. What's going to happen with a ratio that differentiated? And you see this happen with ducks and chickens both. Drakes and roosters end up with certain hens or ducks that they find to be more compatible with them. And I think it's one that they like them better, just like people to a degree. But it's more that that particular duck or that particular hen will allow that particular male to breed them. And so there's going to be a certain number, and it's around five-ish, that if a drake gets to that, think of you guys, five wives. Do you want six? Right? It's not exactly like that, but the consistency of breeding that's going to ensure the fertility, personally, I think a five or six to one ratio is about as high as you want to push it. Now, it doesn't matter that much unless you're trying to maximize egg fertility. And if you have Muscovies and your girl sits on 24 eggs and 16 instead of 20 hatch, big deal. But 5 to 1 is kind of actually what I would shoot for, uh, and it's what I shoot for with Muscovies. With my regular mallard breed ducks, I don't worry about as much. I'm not trying to reproduce them anywhere near at the level of Muscovies because Muscovies are my meat bird of choice at this point. Uh, next, I had a question about dealing with carpenter ants organically because he found them in a bush in a tree that he removed. Okay, they're not in your house. What I would do is absolutely nothing. I wouldn't worry about carpenter ants. And this is something that people need to understand about carpenter ants. Carpenter ants... Do not, 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 never, do not eat wood. They don't eat wood. They're not termites. They're carpenter ants. They make holes in wood, and they build a house in there. And they brood their young, and they hang out in there, and they reproduce in there. It's, they make a home out of wood. They do not do this in living wood. They, they look out and specifically seek decaying wood with an optimal entrance point to make their homes. So the, the gentleman here lost a tree and lost a bush. And from the tone of the in, in, email, I'm not saying this is what he's saying, but what it sounds like he believes is the bush was here doing its bush thing or the tree was here doing its tree thing, and it was minding its own business. It was all happy. Everything was wonderful. Every day when the sun rose, the, the tree looked to the rising sun and sang a song to the sun, and everything was beautiful. And the evil carpenter ants came. And the evil carpenter ants came and destroyed the tree or the bush and killed it. And now I want to get rid of them so they don't destroy my other trees and bushes. Nope. Those trees and bushes were either dead and or dying and had a portion of them that had already begun to decay 
when they were invaded by the carpenter ants. Now, the number one way you could get rid of carpenter ants organically, which is the number way you could get number one way to get rid of ants in general, is to use a concentrated orange oil solution and spray the entire nesting area with it, drench it into them, and then you will end up killing them by melting their exoskeletons and getting rid of them. But I would not worry about carpenter ants living outside of the house. If they're in the house, you have a different issue. You have decaying wood in your house, and you have an optimal entry point. And what you need to do to stop that is remove the decaying wood, if you can, without completely turning the house down. But mainly, it's about putting good, solid, new, healthy dead wood, right, with no decay and no hole, no start point for them to chew on, and close up the house. And then they won't invade anymore. So there you go on that one. But don't, and I'm going to say something too that's going to really freak people out. Not only am I not worried about, you know, I found some carpenter ants out here. I'm not worried about uh, termites. If I find termites on my property, I'm not worried. If I find termites near the foundation of my home, like the fence that's up against the house and they're in the fence post, now I'm worried. Now I want to uh, worry more about um, making sure that I'm knocking down the colony or making sure they're not already in the house and I need to have a professional exterminator deal with it. And those are like, well, would you, you would use a professional exterminator? Termites in my home or on the verge of being in my home? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We did it once, and it affected nothing else on the property period. They had a whole property treatment program they wanted to sell us, which was more expensive. We didn't do that. We just dealt with it at the point that it was a problem. So I wouldn't worry about that much at all. Uh, next, how can the average person use Bitcoin Lightning and do it anonymously? The question was actually, you guys, you showed us this thing that Jack Mallers did last week. How can the average person do that? All right. If you want to do what he did, which was he used his own note, over Tor, and then went and bought somebody with an open source payments option and paid them in dollars, you can't do that as an average person. Now, an average person can do it, but you can't do it as an average person. Do you get that? So you can almost do it as an average person. You can get a Lightning wallet, fund it with some Bitcoin, go to a place with an open payments option, Right, so you have to have somebody that's taking open payments, QR code, pay here, pay with Bitcoin, any Lightning wallet, which by the way, I think you can put up to $100 into Lightning on a Lightning network with your Exodus wallet. So your Exodus wallet can be a Bitcoin wallet and a Lightning wallet, both. It has an option. Okay, And basically, inside Exodus, you just convert some of your Bitcoin over to Lightning. You can pay with it that way. Will it be anonymous? It's highly anonymous. So now you got to think about what is the purpose of Lightning. It is not to buy a limousine from Elon Musk to have shipped to your house with angels assembling it, coating it with gold in your front yard with 15 Bitcoins. That's not the purpose of Lightning. Large transactions with Bitcoin are not expensive relative to the size of the transaction. Little tiny transactions with Bitcoin are expensive. Lightning's designed to be fast and cheap for small transactions. That's why Jack Mahler's bought a Coca-Cola with his, right? Or your, you know, a, a few groceries or a, a, a coffee and a scone. 
So you actually have to think to yourself, how much effort would the United States government or any alphabet agency from any government use to track down where you bought your scone from? See how that works? So there's not a lot of effort going in there anyway. But everything I said last week about onion routing across lightning still applies. You don't have to do anything. When you make a lightning transaction, what happens is you go to make that transaction, and there's it's not going to go node A to node B and settle. It's going to look for a pathway across the lightning network. Whatever's best at the moment, it's going to take that path. And all that onion routing shit I talked about last week, where it, the, 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 the node doesn't know where the transaction started or where it ends. It just knows the node it got it from and the node it's sending it to. And then the onion keeps rewrapping itself so it's the same size all the way through. That happens on all Lightning transactions, unless you specifically go node to node intentionally, which if you're asking this question, you don't know how to do. So all you really need to use Lightning is a Lightning wallet and put some Bitcoin in it that will end up in on the Lightning network, and you send it across Lightning transactions. If you want to run your own node, nothing's easier than Start9. It still takes some time and effort. The average person can do it, but you won't be average in regard to Bitcoin and Lightning after you've learned how. It will take some effort. It will take some time. You will have to fumble through it. You might lose 50 bucks. If you're not willing to risk losing 50 bucks, don't do it yet. right? And you probably won't. You probably won't. But you might. But I'm, I'm going to tell you guys, all this stuff about fear with using crypto, I'm back to do something with 20 bucks, Do something with 50 bucks. If you lose that, it's cost of tuition. If you can't handle that, you're not ready for the responsibility of having complete control over your money yet. And please get there. Uh, next up, when do you transplant starts into a soil garden that were started with hydroponics? This guy went specific. He did Kratky the way that I do for starts and all. But it doesn't really matter. So he said, do I transplant them as soon as the roots just start to come out of the rapid rooter pellet or, or you know, whatever, if I'm doing it with uh, rock wool, whatever the media is, when it starts to come out, do I let the roots get really big? When do I do it? And here's the answer. When does the plant look like the plant's ready, the above ground part of the plant? It's got a few, at least a few true leaves. It's beefed up. It's got good color. It's happy. It's ready to go, right? It's ready to be hardened off and planted. That's the real answer. That's when you do it. So if you look at the tomato plant and go, that thing's ready to go in the ground. I don't care where the roots are in the pellet, except you're going to have to make sure you water enough that that plant, just like you always would, until it gets roots beyond that it's going to get water. Because if you have the little area around the plant dry out and it doesn't have roots deep yet, You got a problem. Now, here's the other side. It absolutely can be the case, especially with hydroponics, that the plant is allowed to grow in the hydro system for too long before it's transplanted and the roots get too big, especially with plants that really don't like the roots pruned. A tomato that gets a few roots pruned off it doesn't really care. Some other plants, you know, something like I always think you should direct seed anyway, cucumber, but cucumber really doesn't like its roots finagled with at all. So if you go to pull it out of a net cup and it takes 50% of the roots off and you put a cucumber in the ground, even if you do everything perfect, angels serenaded and there's not too much sun on it, it's nicely watered, it's gonna, it might come back around, but it's going to look really sad and it's going to have an adverse effect on it. This is why I say don't start cucumbers indoors. There's cucumbers go from seed to production in 60 days. Plant it direct sow in the ground. 
best you can anyway. Um, but you want to watch those roots. And then if they get too big, when you go to pull it out of whatever you're growing it in and you damage the roots, you can have problems. The other thing is even if you get them all out, you get those huge masses of hair roots with Kratky hydroponics. They're a specific kind of root, and that's what makes Kratky so wonderful, this hair root. They don't do well once they're covered with dirt and they don't get enough oxygen in the dirt. It's a different way that they obtain oxygen other than just breathing in humid air, right? So they will generally kind of atrophy and rot off. doesn't mean the plant will die. So you really want to only have a little bit of root starting to come out of the plant, um, out of the net cup when you plant them, ideally. And one way you can mitigate this, I take my net cups, and I take a pair of uh, diagonal, little pair of snipping diagonal cutting pliers, like a little mini pair, and I cut out every other vertical in the net cup so that the holes are bigger. I've even done some where I only leave four. As long as it'll hold the rapid rooter plug, the less damage to the roots, the better. I've even seen people make little four-sided things out of wire that'll hold a rapid rooter plug in a two-inch hole. So anything you can do to mitigate the damage to the roots is better, but the answer is to when is when when the, the, the environment outside is such a plant won't die, won't get frozen to death, Uh, and, and number two, when the plant above ground component is big enough and healthy enough and ready to be transplanted. If you look at it and it's itty-bitty tiny and it's not going to handle being transplanted, don't do it yet. Right? Uh, next up, to till or not to till? Now, I know most of you think he's going to say not to till, but this is a person who says, I'm putting the garden in for the first time and I heard you say you can till the first time and I don't own a tiller, but I could rent a tiller and then I could till it plant that garden, and then not till anymore and go to no-till. You can do that. Here's the issue. What are you tilling? If you're tilling Bermuda grass, when you till it, you're going to cut lots of little, or any kind of rhizome-based spreading grass or weed, you're going to chop up all those little rhizomes, and you're going to put them in nice, fluffy soil, That's like, yay, I want to grow. And you're going to end up propagating the thing you're trying to kill. Now, the main reason people would till that is if you ever tried digging it, it sucks. Even with good dirt. That first couple inches that the roots are in, when you go to dig through that, it is a pain in the ass. And generally, once you cut the sod for the size of your bed out of the way, digging the rest of it the first time to kind of loosen that soil up and get your garden established is really easy. Now, my preferred method is to lay down a bunch of compost and mulch and organic fertilizer and some dry molasses to tarp it for a half a season at least, so four to six months. Let everything die. Kill all the grasses because... They can't grow because they can't get any light, and it's warm enough for them to grow. Everything rots in the soil, and when you pull back everything, it's beautiful, and there's lots of worms and microorganisms. But it is now April. If you do this now, it's a great time to do it logistically in that this is peak growth time, and peak growth time is actually the best time to kill with a tarp because the plant's trying to grow. If you do this during the depths of winter... The grass is dormant anyway. It will survive. And when you pull it back and start planting into it, it will come back. But 
you can do it going into fall and you and get a pretty good result. But right now you want a garden, I understand. This is personally what I would do, especially since equipment rental is on the table. I would not rent a tiller. I would rent, who knows what I'm going to say? Who knows what I'm going to say? Dun, 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 a sod cutter. A sod cutter. They actually make a machine, and these are often used by people that sell sod. And it cuts to about a perfect depth to get the roots out. Sod in a strip. You can then make squares out of it. You could even take that sod somewhere where your garden, your ground is bare and you want grass, till that soil up a little bit, maybe manually, water it in, drop the sod down and use it there. Or you take all the sod and put it to the side. You dig out your garden. You turn your sod upside down and put it in the bottom of the hole and then bury it. And as long as it's at least six inches buried or more, it will die and rot and become part of your garden system. And if I was going to try to eliminate sod and I didn't want to manually backbreakingly remove it, which I've done many times, and I agree it sucks, I'd rent a sod cutter, not a tiller. And then I would go into a good practice of mulching and cover cropping and tarping, depending on how you want to do it, every off-season going forward to mitigate your weed issues. And I would go no-till from there. Are you wrong if you fire up a good old freaking DR rototiller and rototill the crap out of it the first time, Be really, you know, religious about pulling weeds and grass starts from that point forward and then go into, nope, there's nothing wrong with it at all. But if you don't always already own a piece of equipment or have a neighbor that has one, you're going to go down to an equipment rental place and rent it. You're going to find that a sod cutter and a good tiller, not the little tiny little mantis one, but like one that won't break your back, you'll find that the sod cutter will cost a few bucks more a day. And what are you going to need it for a day or two at most? Now, those of you who own tillers, and you're thinking, should I get rid of this thing? Maybe eventually. But I have a really great use for tillers. I have a little walk-behind tiller. And this is what I love to do with, um, with my tiller. What I'm going to put in, and I'm about to do another one, a swale-like path. So I'm going to dig out almost like it's a in-the-ground sidewalk, flat, level path that's on contour. Take the dirt and put it on the downgrade side and plant into it, maybe even build that berm up with additional dirt. That's what I'm about to do with my pond system behind the duck house. Exactly that. What I'll do, I'll mark off the length and width of where I want the swell path to be. I will take that tiller. And I will back and forth two or three passes the entire area I'm going to dig out. After I do that, I go in there with a flat shovel. It's like the only time I'll ever use a flat shovel on my property. And I just scoop out all the loose dirt. It's all about the same depth. It's all perfectly level. It's like a sidewalk, flat sidewalk for your, your little garden path swale. Then put all that dirt on the downhill side, build it up with additional fill if you want to to make it nice and fluffy and large. Because you're not digging a deep hole if you do this. That's that's you know the important thing. You're talking about something maybe you're going down two or three inches. That makes a rototiller perfect for this job. And it makes your job of digging it out a lot freaking easier. But you're going to end up with this beautiful flat sidewalk width type thing. And then when you flood that, however you're going to do it, whether it's just natural flooding with rainfall, whether it's like, in my case, it's going to be the overflow 
from pond surge events, and then it's going to be growing bush cherries. But it can be anything, and that is a awesome use. Hand digging swales of any kind. Mark your swale line with your A-frame level or your laser level or what have you. Run your tiller back and forth in that track, and your job of digging just got so flippin' easy. Mike uh, sent me a super chat, so I'm going to go ahead and answer his question now so it doesn't get missed at the end. Thank you for the super chat, Mike. Uh, thanks for the $10. Bucks. Uh, I have a broody hen that I'm going to let hatch a clutch around Mother's Day. Can I put a couple more dozen incubated eggs under her once they start peeping? Will she care for four to 36 chicks? <sighs> Two different questions. One, can I put a couple more incubated eggs under a chicken that's already brooding? Yes, you can. Knowing exactly when she sat and exactly when you started the eggs so the hatch dates are very close within a day or two is going to be important there. That Yes, you can do that. You also can, if you ever have a chicken and she's sitting on eggs and she's brooding and she doesn't want to come off and you candle the eggs and you can see that her eggs are lost. They're dead. They're not going to make it. Um, if, if you do that, if you find that out, When she's been there long enough that her eggs are close to when they should hatch, if you have babies, like you go, like we did this last year, you go to like, like the feed store or wherever you buy chicks, and you buy like day or two old chicks, and you wait for evening, and you go in and take her off her nest, and put the babies in her nest and put her back, she'll take those babies. You can swap right in live chicks to a broody mother. And you should be able to do it. Most people say they can do it any time of day. But I've just found evenings be perfect because everybody goes to sleep. And the babies are like, I'm sleeping. And chickens kind of go into, once it's dark, they go into that chicken trance state, right, that makes them easy to be picked off if they're not in a good, uh, safe coop. How many chicks one hen can take care of? I don't know, but I think it's probably a number south of 30-something. My instinct, it would be somewhere around a dozen and a half to two dozen. The best mothers I've seen in the bird world are Muscovy ducks. That's why I've, one of many reasons I'm so fond of them. And I have seen Muscovies with two dozen babies. Like, it's just like mom, and I've seen them, like, call it the wild, but like park ponds and stuff. You know, you see mama Muscovy waddling, and you just see this line of babies. You're like, holy crap. And what's happened there usually is she didn't lay all of them. Other mamas figure out, I don't want to sit right now, but this one is, and they'll pop eggs underneath them. But I've seen Muscovies with up to two dozen. Talking to other Muscovy keepers, that seems to be about where they top out. I wouldn't try to push past it with a chicken. So, again, Mike, thanks for the super chat. I appreciate it, guys, when you do that, whether a question comes with it or not. Uh, next, thoughts on a deep freeze in a generator if the power goes out. We're right back where we started. So, this is another two-part question with two totally different components to it. Let's start off, I want a deep freezer to keep, and this guy wanted to keep a quarter beef, right? Wanted to keep a quarter beef in his deep freezer. So you're looking at a decent-sized deep freezer for that. You're not looking at one of the little bitty chestnuts. Okay, so first off, personally... Now, you might not care about my reasoning here because maybe you're a super hyper-organized person that's not going to have a problem. I don't like chest freezers. I like stand-up freezers. 
Because inevitably stuff ends up at the bottom of the chest freezer and you forget that it's there. So we have one little chest freezer. We've had it forever. We'll get to why that's kind of a cool thing in a second here. Um, and we use it mostly for stuff for workshops. So it actually gets shut off or gets filled with ice water bottles in the off season, right? Um, otherwise, we actually we run three stand up, you know, upright uh, deep freezers. The one that I'm least worried about dying is the oldest one. It's old as crap. I got it for free off a of next door. It was 20 years old when I got it. It runs like a champ. It never has a problem. New, um, new chest freezers, new deep freezers are not built like old ones. And they don't have a certain amount of... So it's almost like an undercoating for a vehicle that they used to put on a lot of the parts of them. And they don't do that anymore. And if they do, they call it like outdoor rated or outbuilding rated or something like that. So... There's a high probability if you buy a standard chest or deep freezer and you put it in your garage or your outbuilding that one day, wah, wah, it will just die on you. So, and you can look up how to do this because I can't describe it in an audio. There is a way to basically reinforce your standard garden variety deep freezer and you actually use undercoating. Like the, come, comes in a can that you can use on a vehicle, but there's a way to do it. You can look up how to do that if you want to. A, a tech, explain it to me. I just decided to buy outdoor rated. Spend more money and get the machine that's made like they all we all used to be made. So first thing, if you're going to put this thing in a non-climate controlled environment, thanks for another super chat, Mike. I really appreciate that, dude. I appreciate that a lot. Um, but if you're going to If you're going to put this outside, you need to make sure that you're buying an outdoor rated one or look if you can find one. It used to be really easy in the past. And Margaret says industrial chest freezer seems to be the way to go if you want a big one. Absolutely. And another thing you can do if you find, and Craigslist is great for this, commercial freezers. And sometimes they're the ones with like glass for like ice cream and shit. Sometimes you can get those really, really cheap, and those are built like a freaking brick house, right? Now, your generator. It, I don't believe your generator is specific to an application. So I, I talked about this last week. Personally, I think for most people, in most instances, good quality, not to the level of a Honda, generators are your best investment, Uh, these are going to be things like Briggs and Stratton and Champion. And those generators are generally rated for a thousand hours of runtime in their life. I will tell you right now if they are properly maintained. I have a Troy built rated for a thousand hours. It's got like 1800 hours on it. It runs like the day I bought it. But I'm religious about taking care of it. So all you need to worry about when it comes to a generator for your deep freezer. Does it have enough power to do other things, if that's what you want to do, and run the demand your freezer has? The bigger thing, though, with your freezers is always understand this. There's no need for your freezer to run all the time. You can run a deep freezer about four hours a day and never have it thaw out. Never have it thaw out. And the key to this is, when it's not running, throw a bunch of moving blankets on it. When it is running... Make sure the side that, ha that gets hot 
is not covered. So you'll be able to determine, it's usually the back, but some deep freezers you'll find it's a side, like one of the two sides. When it's running, if you put your hand on it, it'll be warm. Now wait till it's the, the compressor's kicked in and it's running. You'll feel that's where the heat exchange is. And you don't want to block that off. So when it's running and you got your power to it, don't cover that. The rest of the time, just completely cover it with like cheap Harbor Freight U-Haul style moving blankets. And three to four hours a day, even in a warm climate, when you have it closed up, like a, it's a giant cooler and everything's frozen solid, don't waste generator power. Just run it for a few hours a day. And to me, the best thing to do is run it for about two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, and then let it be by itself overnight and through the day. And you will get uh, out a lot better with that. But I am back to, I am back to really think about you guys with generators. Um, getting an electrician in to install that bypass switch professionally and then pick and choose because you unless you're running a whole house generator truly running a whole house you probably can't run everything what are the most key critical components that you want to make sure you can run in your house discuss that with your electrician and then size the generator appropriately all right next up uh getting started homesteading when you're on the road all the time this person i'm going to say maybe you don't Maybe you don't. Um, if I'm going, if I was gone all the time, and I wanted to do something so that I had some food being grown on my property while I was gone, I would install automated irrigation. I would focus on perennials, and I would focus on berries because this guy sounds like he's gonna move. So I'm all for putting a few trees in a pear tree or a peach tree or a plum or whatever, and say this is my contribution to society. Right, but I'm not for putting ten thousand dollars worth of infrastructure in, and then I'm gonna sell the house in two years, and I'm not gonna get my ROI back out of it. Now, if I think I can get the money back, and it'll be get more marketable, fine, but it probably won't. Okay, so I'm probably not gonna put a ton in, but I would put automated irrigation in, and I would grow like blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, uh, stuff like that, stuff that's kind of seasonal. When you come home, oh, it's ripe. You pick it, you eat it, you freeze it or dehydrate it, and you go on with your life. You could probably put, I mean, I, he didn't really specifically say how many days in a row he's gone. But if you're gone a week at a time, you could put in a garden with automated irrigation. I would use weed blocker in that garden extensively, and I would plant things that do well to be stored. Okay? I would plant things that do well to be stored. Um, and, and what I mean by that is... Tomatoes. Tomatoes can be stored canned. They can be stored dried. They can be stored freeze-dried. They can be stored frozen. And they work well all those ways. Okay? So I would look at things that do well to be stored and can be harvested on a weekly to every other week basis. And again, automated irrigation. That's about it. I wouldn't even look at animals. I do know people that do quail and are frequently gone for two to three days at a time. And I even know people that incubate while they're gone, and they know they'll be back in time to take care of babies. But that would be the absolute limit. Animals require your attention. Now, here's the other side, though, because I think there's probably a lot of people in this guy's situation. He's saving up to buy a property outright. That's when he's going to want to pour it all on. So I would focus on education, during this period, and I would take the time and money that you would spend doing anything beyond the basics we just discussed, and I would just save it and save it and save it. I would 
I would say if you're home one day a month and you can deliver pizzas or do Uber Eats during that day and earn more money to accelerate your plan, I would do that before I would put too much into homesteading while you're not going to be there and you're never really going to make it work. The only other option, and this is a great option for those that are on their final property, is to look for that kind of on-site woofer person that works in exchange for the space. Um, hard to find. It's a unicorn, but they exist. I can't think of her last name, but uh, I, I can never say the name of her, her, uh, her homestead either. Fingnith uh, Ariel, uh, who I've had on the show a couple times, that lives in a tiny house. She's got a really cool uh, tiny house. She's a great photographer. Um, it means like the nest is what the name of her, her little homestead is. And I think she has her own land now, but she lived on somebody else's land, and she did work exchange, and she did a great job with it. You just have to be really careful with this because a lot of people say that they're going to um, do such things, and then they never do such things, right? They they are parasites on the homestead instead of helpers on the homestead. But I think that if you put yourself in a position as a person that's gone from your homestead a lot and you want a caretaker, where a caretaker comes in, They work or they don't. If they do not work out, they are immediately evictable. This is why I would put them through hip camp or Airbnb. Even if you say, you know what, here's what we're going to do. You're going to rent the place for 50 bucks a week. I'm going to give you a stipend of 50 bucks a week. Basically, you're doing it for free in exchange for the work, but you're going to put them through that system with enough money to make that system work. This is why. This is so important. I learned this from Brian. And uh, he... Uh, I'm Brian Norton from Foo Fars Farms, the guy that does the coffee with the CBD and all that in it. If I let you live on my property, and I just let you live there, after like a week you become a tenant. I have to go through all kinds of bullshit to get you off my property. You can become a squatter. It can take me 90 days or more to get rid of somebody I don't want living at my place. If I put you through hip camp... Or if I put you through Airbnb, you are treated by the law exactly like a resident in a hotel is treated. You're in a hotel. For whatever reason, the hotel said, you must go. You go now, right? I got kicked out of a hotel once. It sounded exactly like that. You go now. Um, it was my fault. I was young and stupid. I was in the Army. Anyway, you go now. You leave. Okay, we'll leave. Uh, <laughs> someday I'll tell that story. Um, you have two choices. You leave. Where the person dials 911 and local law enforcement comes and grabs you by your neck and throws you into the street. And I would leave myself that option. I don't like using the state, but the state will be used against me if I don't think this way. In other words, when the person says, I'm not leaving and you can't make me, you have to evict me and I have to go through all this crap, right? When, when that happens, thanks to survival tips and other stuff for the $10 super chat. If I have to go through all that crap, It's going to cost me a lot of money to get rid of you and a lot of time. And while I have you, I can't replace you. So I'm going to leave myself the way to get rid of you so you can't use the state against me. Because that's what you'd be doing. You're like, you'd be like, well, you can't make me leave. And you'd call the cops and say, I live here. I'm a tenant. I'd be like, I have a deal with him where he works and he's not doing his work. And they're going to say, not our problem. He's a tenant. File eviction papers. And it'll take me 90 days and a lot of money to get rid of you. So I'm going to do that as an insurance program. That will that will save you some money and misery. And then you can quickly cycle through till you find somebody you're looking for. 
And this is why I like what Paul is doing with Paul Wheaton's doing with Skip, right? I mean, I think that's awesome what he's doing where you can like train and evaluate and get your skills checked off on by others. But I think what would be interesting is a program similar to Woofing where the property caretaker is rated not by their fellow people who want to be like them, but basically this person stayed at my place, this is our agreement, and they fulfilled it, and this is what they're good at, and this is what they're not so good at. Might be an opportunity for somebody out there to create a pretty cool website to do just that. Maybe Paul already has a component like that in Skip, or maybe it could be expanded to have a component like that, where it's not just, hey, this person knows how to grow a garden, right? They're Skip Level 1 certified or whatever. Um, this person worked for me for six months and did everything they said they would do. Also, to be able to look up this person worked for me for six months and they sucked and it made me miserable and I wouldn't let them anywhere near my property ever again. And if you do, God help you for do choosing to do so. May God have mercy on your soul, that type of thing. All right, next up, um, a use for green onions when they go to seed, which is pretty cool. I know what you're thinking. Well, when green onions go to seed, you get seed. I already knew that. This person wrote me and said, so when your onions go to seed, let them go to seed. And that's, they get, green onions get really big. They almost look like leeks. But if you cut them there and they're hard, uh, they ooze goo and then they're hard and they're not very good tasting anymore. But they do taste and smell like onion. It's the texture that's the problem. So what this person does is when their green onions get really big, they harvest seed if they want seed. They cut them off, right? They put them in the dehydrator and they dehydrate them until they're hard. And then they grind them into a powder, and you have onion powder. Well, Jack feels like Jack should have seen that. I don't usually talk about myself in the third person, but yeah. Um, Jack wasn't wrong or right here, was he? He just didn't see that. And that's why I love doing this, guys. I love doing this show, because I learn from you as much as you guys learn from me. Duh! Onion powder, for free, from something that you would have thrown in the compost before. So I'm doing that from now on. And I constantly have different beds in my aquaponics that are getting onions to that point. They start putting seed heads on. I'll cut that out for a little while, and then they just kind of go off, and you can't stop them. I'm going to let them go. I'll be throwing green onion seed all over my property like I already do. But when it's gone beyond uh, use, dehydrate and make onion powder. Duh. What a great freaking idea. Oh, one thing. Garlic, onions, jalapenos, uh, really hot peppers like habaneros and all. When you put them in your Excalibur dehydrator and you turn the dehydrator on, before you do that, put the dehydrator outside or out in an outbuilding or something like that. Do not dehydrate onions, garlic, or really hot peppers in your house. You can thank me later when you don't do it and don't wish you hadn't done it. All right. Next up, Jake Robinson, who always has questions, said, Hey, I'm on Butcher Box like you. You said tri-tip was one of your favorite cuts from them. How do you cook a tri-tip? Many ways, Jake. Many ways. Um, probably my overall favorite way to do a tri-tip is to put it in a, on a low indirect heat on a grill and cook it to temperature, which I like about 135 to 140 degrees. And one of the reasons that I like um, the tri-tip cut is it's an irregular cut. 
So if I cook something to 135, 138 degrees, which is kind of my go-to temperature for that cut, I will go lower with certain cuts. It's all nice and red and juicy and delicious. And my wife goes, I don't want to eat that. That's not cooked enough. So I generally end up cooking two separate things. Well, the tri-tip, I'm not going to do that. But the tri-tip will have thin and thick components to it. So if you're good with some of it being more of a well-done and some of it being more of a rare, you put your probe thermometer into the deep center, you cook your center to that beautiful medium temperature, and you take your tapered ends and you give that to your friend or your wife or whoever likes to have their beef ruined. Uh, it's it's still the way I do it. It's still pretty juicy for well done, but it's not as good in my opinion. And they eat that piece. She's basically like it kind of shaped like a thing like this. And you get two thin areas and a thick area. The thin areas go to the wife, and the thick areas go to Jack. So that's one of my favorites. If you want uniformity, sous vide. Tri tips are delicious sous vide to a temperature of about 138 to 142, depending on what you like for doneness or warmer. It's a reasonably worked muscle. That's why it has so much flavor. It's what the Brazilians call picanha. It's one of the most delicious pieces of meat out there. It honestly is. It's overlooked by a lot of people as well. Um, but it does have a lot of working muscle to it, so it's a little bit tougher than some of your other cuts. So what I recommend is if you're going to sous vide it, sous vide it for about four hours. Now, you live in a household where everybody agrees that meat is better cooked to like 145, 150, medium well, right? Because if you go beyond that, you've sinned against meat, and I don't want to help you. You shouldn't, you shouldn't exist. You and beef don't belong together if you're going to go higher than that. But that's the temperature you want. You don't want to do that temperature for four hours with your average size tri-tip. It's too high for too long. You're going to cook too much juice out of it. So what you're going to do is you're going to cook it like me or anybody else who's sane and doesn't fear meat that has some red in it. And you're going to cook it at like 140, 142 for about three hours. Then you're going to turn the temperature up to your finishing temperature and cook the last hour at that temperature. That will finish it through, and it won't hold it at that temperature for four hours and cook too much juice out of it. Then you're going to, to uh, sear it off however you like. Those are my two favorite ways. But another way that I like to do tri-tip, I'll cut it up into pieces and cook it like for fajitas. Don't be afraid to cut it up. I know that like there's a Brazilian out there right now who wants to come to my house and slit my throat for saying that. I'm sorry. It's actually delicious done that way, and you're able to cook it really a lot quicker that way. So we'll do all three of those. There's probably some other things I do, but those are my three big ones. Indirect heat on the grill, brought up to temperature, allowing the outer pieces to cook a little bit more so there's happiness in the Spirico household. So what do I do when I sous vide it and it's all pink? I cut the ends off, the, you know, the pieces that my wife's going to want and the sizes that she likes. I turn the skillet on high. I throw a tablespoon of beef tallow in there, and I throw it in there. Shh, don't tell her. And I cook it so the color disappears, but it actually hasn't cooked anymore. It takes seconds, and that pink color is gone, but you really didn't raise the temperature very much and immediately get it out. And she's like, see, you can make it well done and juicy. I'm like, yeah, I can. I can, and that's how I do that. All right, next up, um, person has a 30-day food supply, and they're now thinking about drawing from it to save costs because food's so expensive. If you have financial problems and you're doing this, this is exactly why it's there, so sure. However, 30 days isn't that much, 
And I would definitely have a plan to get out of the other side of your financial shortfall before you deplete it. And I wouldn't draw on it 100%. I would draw on it at about 5%. That'll make it last months. But that may not be enough to cut your expense. You see, like, my thing is, once you have a 30-day food supply, you absolutely should be pulling from it. But you should be replacing it on the back end. And I would tell you that my goal for America, 60 days, survival food in every home. This country will stop acting like a bunch of terrified children when there's a hiccup in the supply chain if we get there. Everybody will calm their shit and will stop having people storming the castle and buying everything they can get their hands on that they don't even know how to use. That's all we need is 60 days. I think 90 is a better goal. It is the better goal than the 60, but 30 is better than zero. But if you need it, use it. That's why you have it. This person also, though, is growing a garden and getting a ton of greens out of their garden. And I would say, once you start producing a food item, start thinking, what is this saving me in dollars? And use those dollars initially to move up the storage side. So I would only go into that if you have to, right? But don't not do it. I've seen people on forums and the like, we're eating our preps. I feel like I failed. I lost my job. You know, my wife got cancer. We're trying to figure out what to do. And I'm living off our preps. You're not a failure. You're a success. Just, yeah, now we're drawing down the battery. We need to, the entire time we're drawing down the battery, that's why we have the battery. How are we going to recharge it? We do need to be thinking about that. And by having time on our side, we can figure out how. Uh, next, um, how would I live out my principles, personally, as an anarchist, if I was stuck on a grand jury? Uh, and I'm, I expanded it to say in a jury period. So it's a little harder on a grand jury. I think a lot of people don't know what a grand jury is. The grand jury decided this person's guilty. No, grand juries never decide if a person's guilty or not. So what a grand jury does is say, the state has met its burden of proof to be able to take this case to trial. So there's enough presented by the state as evidence that it appears there, there, there's a case against the defense. Not they're guilty. And honest to God, with few exceptions, grand juries are rubber stamps. It is almost never the case, especially in garden variety stuff. You know, if you've got like a dream team of lawyers or something, you might get out of things at the grand jury level. But in general, when a prosecutor asks to be able to take a case to court, grand juries tend to be very forgiving because they know, I'm not saying this person's guilty. I'm saying there's enough evidence that it looks like there may have been a crime, and that's up to a jury of their peers to decide in a different setting. So living my principles on a grand jury would be very difficult, and I'm very, very sure that with the the scrutiny that a grand jury member is given, it's, it's in some ways it's a higher level of scrutiny than for a case itself. Because you don't know what's going to end up in front of that person during the time they're going to serve on it. Where when we're doing jury selection for a case, the prosecutor and the defense know it's this one question at play here. Did Bill kill Tom and was it justified or not? Right. So they know what they're selecting. Grand jury, 
you could see multiple cases in a week or a day. That's the way I understand it anyway. So this gets at jury nullification. So if I'm on a grand jury and they bring a case before me as a juror, and they said, did Bill really have 50 pot plants growing in his house with the intent to distribute cannabis as a Schedule I substance? Of course, my opinion is I don't care. I don't care. I don't think it should be a crime to grow 50 plants of anything. So I would say no. But I'm doing that with jury nullification. I don't even know how that would work in a grand jury. I don't even know how that... I think I would get kicked off is what would happen if I tried to live my principles. Because if you brought me any case and, I, and I'm like, okay, so who's the victim? Well, the state's the victim. Sorry, no. The people are the victim. Which people? The people. Oh, you mean the state? Yeah, no. No. If you said, Bill killed Tom, here's the evidence that Bill killed Tom, and I look at the evidence, and I'm not sure Bill killed Tom, but I'm like, well, I can see why you'd want to try this case. I'm going to vote for that to move to trial. But Jack, you're an anarchist, but this is the system we have. Right? Now, I'm going to probably not end up on that grand jury anyway. But th that's how I would handle it. I just don't know how it would work out. Now, totally different question. What about a regular jury? Guilty or innocent? Bill had 50 cannabis plants in his garage. Not guilty. Well, you have to find him guilty. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it would not guilty. And if it's a hung jury or whatever, like keep sending you back, I would just tell the members of that jury, I don't believe this is a crime. But it's a crime under, you know, Texas code, blah, blah. I'm sorry, I don't think it's a crime to own plants. Not guilty. But you have to vote. No, I don't. No, I don't. And I suggest you don't either, because I'm not ever going to do it. Now, I'm back to Bill killed Tom. Do I think we have better systems that could be available to us than the current system of supposed justice we have? Yes. Do we have those? No. If I'm on a jury, and you convince me beyond a reasonable doubt that Bill killed Tom and it was not justified, I'm going to vote guilty. And I'm going to judge it based on that legal standard that I've been asked to serve on a jury to do beyond a reasonable doubt. If I have any reasonable doubt, I'm going to vote not guilty. right? And I'll do that with any crime, with a, a child sex crime, uh, theft, robbery, assault, anything like that. I'm going, to, I'm going to do the same job you'd expect out of any juror. You give me a victim as crime, and this is why I'll never be on a jury. Because somebody will, some, somebody will play this exact video, and they'll go, yeah, he's out. But I think that's what everybody should do. I think jury nullification is a great idea that doesn't work. We even have states, I think it's New Hampshire, where you're allowed to use jury nullification. You, the, the criminal, according to the state, can say, yeah, I did it, but it shouldn't be illegal, so set me free. And it's, as far as I know, it's never worked. It's never worked. So I think there's a lot of work left to do before that will get us anywhere. And the final question today from the mailing questions. How does a 20-something hope to even save to buy a house in this economy? The answer is, it's easy. I didn't say it was so stupid easy that you could do it without trying, though. Here's the thing. I'm really young, and my problem is I need to save money to do a thing. You're really young. You have time. Just start doing it. But I don't make enough money. 
deliver packages for Amazon, start driving for Uber, start driving for Lyft, start a side hustle. I don't care what you do. Make the money. You can right now. You're 20-something, make the money. It won't be easy. There'll be days when you just want to quit. There'll be days when you don't. That's what I love about the hustle economy. Like if you're doing like like Lyft or Uber or whatever, you just take a day off when you just, I can't do it today. I can't do it today. But it, it the thing is that if you actually focus on that as the goal, it's easier than you think it is. Because then anything that gets in the way of that goal, if that's actually your goal to get into property ownership, you don't do it. I can go out to the bar tonight and chase girls. Or I can go home, do nothing but not spend that money and put it aside for this property purchase. And then get good at bargain shopping. Start the, the thing you can do that is the best thing you can do so that you can buy a property when you're ready the smart way. Start shopping property now. You're bored, you got nothing to do, and you can't hustle today for whatever reason. Drive around and look at properties that are for sale. And then watch them and see how long it takes them for them to sell. That keeps, one, your eye on the prize. The dream is still alive. You know what you're working for. Two, you become very educated to your market. And when somebody goes, that's actually a really good deal, you go, eh, no, it's not. Or when somebody goes, I don't think that's a good deal, you go, oh, yeah, it is. Now, here's the other thing. Everybody's looking at the price of property right now going, I'll never be able to afford property. That which goes up, ladies and gentlemen, eventually does what? Comes down. We are in an unprecedented real estate bubble right now. But BlackRock's buying all the properties. <laughs> I predict in less than five years, BlackRock's going to be asking for a bailout. Watch. Real estate has been inflated. Really inflated. Beyond what is absolutely, that makes any sense at all right now. And people like BlackRock are part of why. And sometimes people that use poison poison themselves. They're buying property unseen for 20% over market value. Okay? Okay. And what happens when this country, within a year, year and a half, two at the absolute limit, goes through a recession that's going to be worse than 2008? And it's going to happen. What's going to happen? To real estate property prices when that happens. They're going to plummet. There's going to be ass loads of property sitting out there on the bank's balance sheets as foreclosures. It's going to happen. There's a buttload of them waiting to explode onto it already from all this freaking deferral of rent. Right? Because the landlords are going broke because they can't evict the tenant. It's coming. We are headlong into a recession. And you'll see a major pullback in real estate prices. Now, somebody said here, uh, Hunters, uh, F770 says, buying land is hard, best interest is 6%. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you right now, there are way too many people that want to do like agricultural things, thinking about buying land instead of thinking about leasing land. I can't get into the tax lesson today. But if you buy land to have a farm on, In 2022, you hate money. Now, if you buy 50 acres to live on and you farm on it, that's not what I'm talking about. If you want to graze 100 acres and you think, so I'm going to, to graze 100 acres to make money in the cattle and sheep business, I'm going to buy 100 acres, you hate money. 
and you don't know tax law, and no good CPA or tax attorney familiar with agricultural taxes would tell you to spend your money that way. Period. So don't buy land. Buy a small place, and if you want to do ag, find an area with leasing options for agricultural land, and buy your small property near that area and lease. And we'll start now with the questions, and we'll take one out of order here, because Ron says, when leasing, how long would you lease for? Depends. It depends. How long are they willing to lease me the land for? What am I leasing it to do? What is the state of land at the current time? What is the rate? I mean, I don't know. I really don't know. There's really no way. There's really no way to absolutely answer that question. So I'm not ducking it or dodging it. That's just like those are some of the things that I'm going to think about. But in general, I think that you're, you know, you're probably trying to look for something in the neighborhood of about five years. The other side of it is, do you really think it's that important? We're not leasing land to plant a forest. We're not going to be bringing in earth-moving equipment and putting in big dams and ponds and swales. And the person we're leasing from probably wouldn't be open to that anyway. right? We have to have some sort of long-term guaranteed renewal lease or something if we're going to be doing something like that, some kind of uh, beyond partnership. So I, I, I'll try to find it, but what you're looking for is how Joel Salatin can show you how to make $80,000 on 40 acres with pigs, I think is what the video was. And so he talks about you, you, you lease this square of 40 acres and you put in this system to move the pigs around in. And you run your pigs on it. And when your lease is up, the landowner says, it's been fun, it's been real, love what you did with the place, get out. And basically, two or three pickup truck loads of shit and you move your farm to the next piece of land you lease. Because you're looking at some stock tanks, you're looking at like solar uh, electric generators for your electrical fencing, you're looking at push-in-the-ground stakes and wire on reels that you can move around. So the model for leasing to farm works best first, not with vegetable crops, but with animals. Portable infrastructure. And the master of this, in my opinion, is Greg Judy, because Greg is farming thousands of acres and I think he owns less than a hundred and all the land he fa he's farming is right around where he's at so check out Greg Judy and his stuff as well that's G-U-D-Y people have asked Greg G-R-E-G-G-U-D-Y uh, awesome awesome guy John says what's the biggest thing you're working on in your life right now right now this minute if I'm not talking about like the macro view of the Spirico legacy uh, is going to be the aquatics course And right now I'm doing less about building the course and more about finishing the last bits of the last system that's going to be in the course. And my goal for this aquatics course is when that system's done, and I do like a two-hour explanation of that system, that the person that didn't take the course is like, wow. And the course in, person that did take the course is like, holy shit. I want that person to have so much of a deeper fundamental understanding of what they're seeing that they get so much more out of it. And that's, I think, what a good teacher does in any kind of a course really is two people look at the same thing. The one that's had the course sees it at a whole new level. That's the biggest thing I'm personally working on right now. Trevor says, hey, Jack, what is the best state to move to to start a small homestead? 
I don't know. It depends. What do you want? You, If you want climate type, damn, the Northeast is hard to beat. Ohio, Pennsylvania, etc. But you want freedom, you know, you're looking further north in New Hampshire. It gets awful cold up there. Uh, you're looking down here in Texas, but it's a little bit harder to do things. Right? So I think, you, Trevor, you have to ask yourself, what do you want? This is, like, this is how you find a new home. I've done all shows on it. Maybe we'll do another one sometime soon. It's a good topic. Um, what does Trevor want? What does Trevor's wife want? What do Trevor's kids, assuming they exist and are old enough to express an opinion, want? What kind of education do you want for your kids? What kind of neighbors do you want? How much land do you want? When you say homestead, what do you mean? Three acres? A third of an acre? Thirty acres. Right? Um, what's your income like? What are the sources of your income? Because some places have a low tax footprint for one type of income, but not so much for another. If you're going to have a small property, you might want to look for a, a small property, right? Or even a larger property, you're going to put a lot of effort into the property itself, and you're not going to have much on-paper income. You probably want to look for a state with really low property taxes if your wealth is going to be in the property, like Arkansas. Arkansas is a great state to own land in. Because property taxes are low. If you have a high personal income, all your income over $35,000 a year is taxed at 7%. With the salt limits taken away in lieu of a dual standard deduction, if you're a high net worth earner, Arkansas is a very expensive state to live in. So you have to look at not just doing the homesteading, because honest to God, you want a great place to homestead if you took away people and government? Washington and Oregon are awesome. Parts of California are awesome. They're amazing geographically. But I don't want anything to do with the government there. Right? So it, it depends. I'm sorry. It's just, it's, and there's never going to be a different answer for that because what do you want? Tom says, where would you put the borderline on taking a PDC or not? Would it be if you want to go into design as a profession? If I want to do permaculture design as a profession, I don't even just want to take a PDC. I want to take two PDCs by dramatically different instructors to broaden my horizon of view, and I consider that personal development. Then, if you have the time and the money and you want the mental expansion that comes with it, take a PDC. If you don't know, but you're not going to be mad if it's not exactly what you expected, Take a PDC. I think a PDC, PDC can be good for everyone. But it won't be good for everyone because if you want one thing and get another. So I'm back to if you think what you're going to get out of a PDC is how to plant a garden, manage a hutch of rabbits, you know, um, and run an aquaponics system. You're going to get you, – you'll be a better at – you'll be better at it, but it's not a path to it in of itself. All right. Next up. Uh, New Hampshire Homestead, I'm guessing, NH Homestead. What is a good cover crop or other productive plant for use in poor draining, very wet soil, Zone 5? Anything that gets deep down in the pan and opens up pathways. So daikon radish would be, probably be your number one thing to make sure that you're included. Turnip's good for this, too. Um, anything that gets down into the hard pan of the soil, because that's why it doesn't drain well. But there might be other ways to deal with this, right? Like earthworks, etc. People think swales are bad, but if we spread water instead of concentrate water, we mitigate that really wet, impenetrable soil. Uh, but I, if you just want a plant to deal with this, tillage radish, which is a brand name of daikon. It's specifically uh, been bred to be really big, deep, and hard pan penetrating. 
Uh, Thomas says, are there manual electric combo wells? We already did that one during the question. How do you keep, Cheryl says, how do you keep Fox and Dana from harming your chickens and ducks? They don't, just don't do it. But how did I get them that way? I know what the real question is. So the first thing is my cats have a sound that makes them kind of react with fear. And that sound is psst, right? Psst, just like that. You'll find that cats in general, that sound, because I think it mimics the hiss of another cat, is already alarming. But if you really want to get them alarmed to it, you need disassociative behavior in conjunction with the sound. Disassociative behavior is uh, a spray from a garden nozzle. So when they were little kittens and they would start kind of creeping up on like a duck or a chicken or a baby chick or a baby duck, and duck, I would sneak up on them and I would try not to let them see me so that I'm not why it's happening. The behavior caused it. So they're sneaking up on the baby chicken or duck and just a real quick blast with the hose nozzle. I'm talking like, like you're watering the garden blast. Like, bam! And then shut it off. Drop it. And then when they run away, you'll see them kind of look back and then making sure they can hear you. Psst, you make that sound. So what ends up happening is the sound... The behavior and the water are all in a common area inside the feline brain. We have to train felines a little bit more instinctive than we do canines. Canines, canines are like, I wish to please the master. Cats are like, I am the master. I wish for you to please me. So we have to make it not about us. So then we notice the behavior in the cat that we do not want the cat to continue with. So now we've done the water thing a couple times. Now we just go, psst. If the cat lowers his ears and takes off, you've done it. All you now have to do is stay on it, and it will only be a matter of time that the chickens, those are wet cat birds. When the chickens are harassed, the cat gets wet. Now, my cats have been doing this so long that occasionally, especially Dana, will like feign charge at a chicken or a duck just to watch it run away to amuse herself, but there's no real aggression there, and I let that go most of the time. But that's how you train a cat to anything. That, that sound, so something. I use water because it's easy and harmless, right? But whatever will work. And then if we can get it to like a verbal thing that triggers a response in cats, which again is pretty easy. So now the cat is about to take a dump in the garden. So you see the cat pawing the garden. Psst, the cat runs away from the garden. Stay on it. Every time that cat goes in the garden, psst. And eventually, okay, the garden is a bad place. I could get sprayed. I don't want to get sprayed. So I'm not going to go in the garden because cats hate water. It really is that easy, and I've had my cats now for about seven years, and we've never lost a baby chick to the cat. Now, when we had quail, the one time I was moving the quail tractor, and one of the quail got out in the air, and Fox jumped up probably four foot in the air, grabbed the quail as it was flying, rolled around with it on the ground, but he didn't actually kill it or even try to kill it. It was more like, hey, look what I did, and it went to the quail back and put it away. Um, how far can you take this? I don't know. Um... But I've never had a problem with ducks, chickens, etc. And we have babies running around all the time, no problem. Uh, Jason says, do you have any advice for carpenter bees? Same as I gave carpenter ants. Carpenter bees don't eat wood. So what you need to do is close up the place they're getting into if it's a structure and repair any damaged wood because the smell of decaying wood, decaying wood has a smell. It has a fungal odor to it. We've all smelled what I'm talking about. And these insects have a higher level of ability to detect that 
It's how they find their next home. So we need to deal with that issue. If they are in anything else, like a tree or a stump, they're just doing their job in nature. I'm not going to worry about them much unless they're creating other problems. Now, I've heard carpenter bees sting. I'm sure they can. When I was at Nicole Sauce's place, there were so many of them around. We made a bee back because they were annoying us, but nobody got stung. So I, I don't think your odds of getting stung are really high. Alice says, what about wood roaches? I have no knowledge of wood roaches. Um, and we have Mike's question. came with a super chat on broody hens, and I already answered that one. Survival tips and other stuff says, what is your go-to pumps for water and aquaponics? Uh, Active Aqua, and you can find them if you go to tspaz.com, my review on them. Uh, Active Aqua pumps, and they come from 400 gallons up to 1,100 gallons. And for the small size pump, That's what I use in everything. I use between the 400 and 550 are my, my kind of my go-tos, depending on what I'm doing. And for larger pumps, I use uh, Danner, and I use them in a two to 3,000 gallon per hour. They, they come in both. Um, I pretty much standardize on 3,000 gallons. You can always divert extra pressure from your pump, but you can't make more if you don't have it. And I like to have all my pumps at the same form factor, so I have spares on the shelf if one has a problem, I can pull it and replace it. Even sometimes if the pump just really needs a really good servicing and I don't have time to service it, I'll put a brand new one in place, let the other one dry out. Then it's really easy to clean out when everything dries in it. You'll learn all these tips and tricks when we do our course. Uh, Cletus says, can you do bone and biltong? I would not think so. It is kind of against what biltong is all about. Biltong is not jerky. It's curing. Think of it like prosciutto with beef or red meat. And so you need good airflow all around the product. And if you have it up against a bone, you're not going to get that. So you want sticks about the size of like a baby's wrist in diameter. And you want to hang it so that it has even airflow all around it. And it almost mummifies. Like, And I don't think bone would be good for that. Another uh, survival tips and other stuff comment. I use old freezers for earthworm boxes. Tomato starter because it's insulated. I think that would work great. You know what else works really good with them? You have to put a drain system in and kind of drain them down grade out the back. Uh, but basically miniature root cellars I've seen done where they take an old chest freezer that's dead, bury it in the ground, and then you, you can open it and you have below ground storage or into the side of a, a hill. I don't know how good it really works. But I've seen several people do it and at least say that it works. Christopher says, where do I buy the best pear trees for Zone 7B? I don't know. Your local nursery is probably your best place. And 7B will grow any pear under the sun. So you buy the kind that you want. And if you're going to order through the mail, I will say this. Stark Brothers, I've had the best quality bear roots shipped to me out of all the catalog companies. Rain Tree, One Green World, Gurneys, etc. Like, I've never gotten the quality consistently in buying trees through the mail that I've gotten from Stark Brothers. And they, I don't remember what they call it, but they have like not all of their trees do they offer this in, but they have like a higher tier level where the tree's a little bigger, the roots are a little bit better. Basically, like, they say they, they do some other shit with it, but I think you think about it like this if you got to go to the nursery, and go through what was available and pick the top stuff for yourself, think of it like that. And again, I can't remember what they call it at Stark Brothers, but you'll, you'll see it in their catalogs and on their website if the option's there, the kind of better option. 
and it's probably worth like it's like ten bucks more a tree. And that's what I would do when it comes to pears. Now, if you're buying trees in mass, I would look to your state nursery, uh, state forestry nursery, things like that, or like uh, Cold Stream Farm or something like that. If you're buying trees in bulk uh, to plant on their own rootstock, but for a grafted pear, Stark Brothers through the mail, local nursery. Local nurseries generally do a really good job. Um, to stay in business anyway. When I say local nursery, I don't mean the nursery at Lowe's. I don't mean the nursery at Callaway's or something like that. I mean Bill's Tree Emporium or, or what have you. Um, and, you know, check around if, if you have uh, local nurseries. Uh, that's, you know, keep your money local if you can. K-Bronk, deep freezer, temperature probe, time cycle, freezer control, recommended or not. I don't know really what you're asking. I have no idea. Um, now, if you mean taking a deep freezer using a thermometer, a, a thermostat, Uh, like a Johnson Controls thermostat, to make it into a high-efficiency refrigerator, that works good. But I don't think that's what you're asking, so I really don't know what you're asking there. Jason says, what are your thoughts on mushroom coffee as a substitute for regular coffee? So you're talking about mud water. Read the ingredients, and if it was just mushrooms, that'd be one thing, but I think it's actually pretty high in carbohydrates from what I looked at mud water. And you probably saw it in a commercial waiting to see my live feed. Um, I drink mushrooms in my coffee. It's actually the same mushrooms that are in... Um, mud water, except it's a smaller amount and it doesn't do any flavoring. I use Sacred 7 mushroom extract uh, for the anti-cancer properties. If you want to try it, give it a try. That's all I can say, but I, I don't have an opinion one way or another. Best way to kill a duck, chopping block, killing cone. Should I use a stunning blow to the head? When I kill ducks and chickens, I hang them up and I cut the carotid arteries and jugular vein on both sides of the neck and I let them bleed out. Um, I don't use cones because I don't kill a lot. I only cull. I take a five-gallon bucket, and I put it underneath the bird. I have two pieces of um, parachute cord with like where you can make a loop in them real easy. Like It's got a loop tied in the end, and you pull through the loop, and it makes a slip knot. So I can hang two feet, one in each, boom, hang the bird. I keep them loosely wrapped on the tree branch. Five-gallon bucket stays over there. It's a pile of wood chips in the area for this and other things. I put a couple inches of wood chips in the bottom of the bucket. I take the bird and I hang it. I pull it outward. And there's people who, probably in this that have been to classes that have seen me do this. I massage the bird's neck. I put a little bit of tension, like right up underneath the chin, not like a sleeper hold or anything. I'm not actually doing anything to really cut things off. But the, the blood is rushing to the bird's head, and the bird's on now. Uh, a slight angle towards me, and I massage the neck, and I watch the bird's eyes, and eventually the eyes just kind of roll over in their head. I take a very sharp knife, I cut on both sides, I make sure that I've got bleeding, and I put the bird dangling inside the bucket. So the, the cords are long enough that the bird is head in the bucket while this is going on. And the bird bleeds out, and usually it does the final flippy flip thing. The way I do it, And again, some people in this chat probably have seen this. There are times when that bird never moves. The first class I did here on how to process chickens, I did that, and I almost felt bad. Because you had people that had never processed before watching this bird literally go to sleep by bleeding to death or never even flip. And that's a pretty high, high standard to set for someone that's never done it before. But it can be done. But in general, putting them in a cone, two cuts, let them flip. By the time they're flipping... 
everything's kind of shut down at that point anyway. But that's what I personally do. I do not do the lop the head off thing. Um, I think that triggers a really rapid heartbeat. And even though the bird, yes, the bird is gone. The bird feels nothing. It's an instantaneous death, yes. But the body is still capable of surging adrenaline at that point. I don't like slaughter. I don't like it at all. But I want it to be as peaceful as possible for the animal's sake and for the quality of the meat. And, and that's what I found to be best. Now, I've had some birds that were problematic to catch, and I've shot them in the head with a 22. Right, just so. Anyway, uh, Black, Jay Black says, Jack, you jerk last fall. I amended my garden soil after listening to an old episode. I had 400 pounds of beet pulp shreds for horse far, uh, forage fiber. I buried it in six inches and can reach down 18 now. It worked amazing. Yep, nothing works like organic matter. Absolutely. Fireproof Facts Fox said, is this a good buy? A 1998 three, F-350 odometer stopped at 150 AT&T service truck at $4,500. I want to start a handyman business and I'm 19. I don't know. Um, assuming that it's in good repair, it's a steal. Except an AT&T service truck. <laughs> It had the shit beat out of it. Now, the other side is probably properly maintained. Most fleet vehicles, oil changes and stuff like that are done very regularly. But the people that drive them abuse them. But $4,500, I mean, if, the, if it does what you want, this is what I recommend with any vehicle you're going to buy. You say, I want to take it for a test drive. You already know where it's going. You take it to a qualified mechanic that you pay $100 to $150 to completely go over it from one area to the other. You end up with three things as a result. One, don't buy this thing. It's ready to explode. It's going to cost you more to get rid of it than you're going to pay to get your hands on it. Right? Like, just don't buy it. Okay? Number one. Number two, this is a deal. If you don't buy it, I'm going to buy it. I actually had a mechanic tell me that once. Uh, he said, if you don't buy it at this price, I will. Okay? Or a cut sheet. Here's all the shit that's wrong with it. And then you can go back to the seller and say, fix this shit, or we need a discount for it. At that price, I don't know, 98, that's pretty old. That might be a good deal. This is very much, I'd have to look at it to know, and I, I, I'm not in that business, right? So, anyway, um, there might be some other stuff that, stuff that came in since I've been doing that, but... I think I'm going to wrap up there. We're almost at two hours here, guys. I enjoyed today's show. Let me get down here to the end and see if I could maybe take one more. All right, this is interesting. Uh, very interesting. DIY Honda says, Thai Thai Nursery is really good. I ordered from them once, and what I got was crap. I actually stopped at their nursery. When I was driving through Georgia on my way to Florida years and years ago, and I thought... Boy, this is a poorly run, well-marketed orchard. But he got good results. The reason I say that's interesting is, he also says, Stark Brothers Pawpaw, worst quality tree I've ever bought online. Hmm, that's interesting too. I think we can get really good results from somebody, and really bad results from somebody, and it doesn't necessarily say what your average expectation of results is. Here's what I've noticed about Stark Brothers. I've gotten like one or two plants that I really was disappointed in. They always replace them. And then Paw Paw is a 
tough plant to ship. Pawpaw is tough to ship. You know what else is tough to ship? It's hard to believe it if you propagate it and plant it on site and don't ship it. Goji berry. Goji berry is like a honey badger. Once it starts growing, you could pee on it and you can't, you can't salt it to death, right? It just keeps growing. It doesn't care. You take a beautiful little goji plant. You pack it up like you love it, like you're transporting, you know, uh, a golden goose egg that's going to hatch a goose that makes more golden eggs. And it goes in the mail for two days and it comes out and looks like somebody stepped on it. Pawpaw, in general, I found to not really like the United States Mail Service. So um, that's interesting, but I have had the trees that have done the best and established the best for me have come from Stark Brothers. So take that, do what you will with it, and uh, thanks for your input there, man, just because we don't agree on I don't even think we disagree on that. We just had different experiences. Um, that's interesting that you told me Tai Tai is good. I wonder when you ordered from them because for me, after I got bad results and then visited and wasn't impressed, I've never touched them again, and I lived in Arkansas back then. So we're, we're more than 10 years back. And maybe it's not fair that I hold something against somebody that long. With that, guys, hope you enjoyed today. Thanks to everybody that threw out a super chat. I'll be back tomorrow with part five in the Permaculture series. Well, hope you guys enjoyed that one. And if you're thinking, hey, man, I would really like to hear about this other thing. Remember, you can always email me things you want to hear about. And a lot of them will end up on the air. And if you don't hear it on the air, ask again. But follow the formula. Ask your question. Or ask me to make a comment on something in one very clear, very specific sentence. Hit the return key, then give me the details. However you send it to me, it goes to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I don't really care what goes in the subject, article for Jack, question for Jack, whatever. As long as you also include, as though it was a word, the anacronym TSPC, like all together, all the letters connected to each other, TSPC. That's so if it goes into spam hell, I will find it eventually anyway and get it out and move it into my action items folder if it does get eaten by the spam filter monster. Uh, and, and, you know, I can't get everything on the air, but, man, you'll notice if you follow me on, like, uh, MeWe and Float and Gab, what have you, a ton of stuff you guys send me, even if it doesn't get on the air, it does get shared with the audience through social media, and it does influence the conversation, even if I don't specifically cover it. With that, let me remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support this show is to become a sponsor, or not a sponsor, a member of the Member Support Brigade. If you become an MSB member, you help support the show uh, with a contribution of $50 a year. You use the discounts, you get your money back. And it's kind of a win-win situation, a value-for-value exchange. Or you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. It's easy to remember. Um, tspaz.com, how could you forget it? T-Spaz. Anyway, you can go there, you can start your shopping there and help us out no matter what you buy, and you can find all the items that I review. I brought a little inexpensive item around today. I haven't had it for almost a year because they've been not available or spotty where you look at it and it says like, you know, only four available order now. When that happens, I don't run that because it just, it's an irritant. I put it out, it's gone, and then nobody can get it. Um, these are monoprice releasable cable ties. And the big reason I brought them around today is, again, they're in stock, which is nice during supply chain crunch like we're in constantly, it seems now. But the 8-inch length ones are on sale for like 6 bucks and change. And they've raised the price on all of these to 8 bucks and change. They're still a great deal. But the 8-inch length is two, two, cents, or two bucks less than the 6-inch and the 10-inch. The 12-inch ones are not in stock again. 
why these things. First of all, zip ties in general, one of the single most useful things on a homestead. I use these things for everything from making uh, impromptu gates, uh, short, quick fixes of, of fencing, uh, when I make my uh, my rings of goat fence for composting. I mean, just anything I do to hold things together, this is an option that works really, really well. Next is because they are thick, heavy-duty ones, unlike the thin, cheap-ass ones you probably get at Home Depot. And those, it costs more. And then the third reason is that you actually have a little tab on them. You push the tab, and they release. That's hence the releasable, meaning you can reuse them. So if you wire together a bunch of cabling under your desk so it's not a mess, and you need to change something, instead of cutting them off and having to redo it, you just take them off and put it back on. Or if you've held a gate temporarily shut with them, you can take them back open. Here's one thing I just did recently. One of those things that you don't even think about it until you need it. I have a pretty badass outdoor kitchen, and I have a concrete top bar, and it's got four cabinet doors underneath it. And I keep, like, you know, overflow kitchen material out there. I keep stuff for cooking in the outdoor kitchen out there. I keep general stuff in there. The wind has been stupid here. And it blew the doors open constantly. Like, it, it basically lifts them like an airplane wing open. And I don't have really, it's like a met metallic, uh, not a metallic, a magnetic Uh, closure on it, which 99% of the time is good enough. Well, I need to do something so they don't open, but temporarily so the damn doors don't get ripped off by the wind, I just zip-tied the handles together. If I need to get in there, poof, off it comes. I use them with fishing. I use them with a ton of stuff. In my write-up, I even tell you how one time, not these kind, but we actually use zip-ties to do a really stupid thing with a pickup truck, but it worked. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just, if you want to hear a stupid Jack story from when he was in the Army, look at And I didn't do it. I found out about it after it was done, even though I was in the truck. You want to know more? Look up the write-up at thesurvivalpodcast.com or tspaz.com. But get these things. Have them in your prepper arsenal. If I made a list of like the 10 most useful things on my homestead that generally get used often, a few times a month to a few times a week, this would make the list. Would they be number five or nine? I don't know, but they'd be in the top 10. I don't even have to question that. Connecting things is important. And uh, in the redneck arsenal, if you got duct tape, bailing wire, and zip ties, you can probably fix 99% of things. And cable ties, cable ties are the way to go. And again, did I mention they'll cost less than the cheap-ass thin ones at Home Depot and Lowe's that are not reusable? Because they do. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me thank you guys for tuning in today. We will have a great episode tomorrow. We're going to go back into the permaculture uh, series, and we're going to wrap that up. We'll have then five editions. And my comments on PDCs today, man, if you go through that course, you'll be able to decide what you want to do next as far as your education in permaculture. Like I said, is the PDC right for everybody? Not everybody, but if you're going to go there, you'll go there fully open Uh, minded, open, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with a full understanding of what you are and you are not going to get from today's segment plus that course, which is absolutely free. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.